chapter 12 as we're marching through the book of Acts, uh, rather slowly, but we're marching through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 12, we run into an episode in Peter's life. And let's set the stage here. Um, Well, let's not set the stage. Let's actually say the first thing that we need to do. We need to make prayer a priority. Now, what is prayer? Anybody know what prayer is? It's simply a conversation with God. How many of you are good conversationalists? Okay, you should be good prayers too. Okay, good prayers. Now, what is involved in conversation? You get to talk and then, and then you get to let somebody else talk while you listen. Now, what are you doing when you're listening? Learning. <laughs> Hopefully. But usually what I find is when people are listening or when they're not talking, they're thinking about what they're going to say next. They're not really listening to what I say. And, uh, and uh, I can give you some examples of that, but I won't. Well, yeah, no, never mind. But sometimes you can tell on people's faces that, man, what you're saying is just not registering, huh? Because they're thinking about what they're going to say next. Now, when prayer comes about, I want you to spend as much time listening to God. In fact, I want you to listen more than you talk. Express your concerns, make your requests known to God, and then listen. Now, how do you listen to God? Two ways. Number one, I want you to read his word. Okay? God speaks to you many times through his word. This morning, we read out of the Psalms, and it talked about the greatness of God. And he's speaking to us. He's not giving us information as much as he wants to create within us a transformation. A transformation in the way we think. Okay? That's where transformation happens. By the renewal of your mind is what the Apostle Paul would say. So you renew your mind, you start thinking differently. Now, most of us know that we need to think differently about what? People. People. How many of you have ever run into somebody that just made some bad decisions, messed up their life, and you walked away saying, well, they got what they deserved? Have you ever done that? Let's, everybody raise your hand. Just everybody. Yeah, we've done that, haven't we? You know, I, I have done that. And I, I think, you know, they, they got involved in things they shouldn't have gotten involved in, and so therefore they end up getting what they deserve. Now, Jesus, he comes into Jerusalem one time, and And as he comes in, he actually weeps for the city. Now, why did he weep for the city? Because he had compassion for them. He saw that they were helpless, helpless to do anything about their condition because they just didn't know any better. And at the end of it, he says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed somebody to show them the way. And so therefore, prayer, when it comes to prayer, we listen to God by the reading of his word. We also listen to God by how he moves within us. Have you ever had kind of a, uh, a prompting kind of a thing where you said, I really need to do this, or I need to do that, or I see something happening in someone's life, and I see them searching for something, and I know that they need some help, and so therefore I have this prompting to get them some help. I might contact somebody else, or I might provide that help myself. And I have this prompting that people are searching and they need something to to help them. And so you become kind of a shepherd for them. Now, what's wrong with sheep? They're stupid. stupid. (laughs) They're really not the most intelligent animals in the circus. And you know why? You don't see any in the circus because they can't be taught to do tricks. So therefore, they're just kind of out there and one follows the other. And and the, the adage goes that if one sheep goes over the cliff, the... They all go over the cliff, huh? Okay, and so they they follow each other, 
and that's cool, but they need a shepherd to lead them so that they don't go over the cliff. In fact, if you read in the Psalms, you'll find that they need a shepherd to find good pasture for them to eat. They need a pasture to eat. They need water to drink. So therefore, the, the shepherd leads them to water. The shepherd lets them lie down and so that they can get rest. And so the shepherd is really important to the life of a sheep. Now, Jesus refers to us as sheep many times. And so therefore, what do sheep need? They need a shepherd to show them how to live life. And so make prayer a priority. Make sure that you're having conversation and it's not just one-sided. Now, I'm going to ask you some questions. What does prayer do? Does prayer change God's mind? How many of you would say prayer changes God's mind? Like, I've given him some information that he didn't have before, so therefore he was going to do this, but now he goes, oh, I get it. Thank you for that, Mike. I'm going to do this now. Boy, good thing you helped me out. How many of you think that's what happens in prayer? No, it doesn't. We don't change God's mind. God is an all-knowing God, correct? He knows everything, beginning and end, and he doesn't need more information. Okay, so... Prayer doesn't change God's mind necessarily. Now, there's one time in the, in the book of Exodus where Moses is leading the children of Israel. And Moses is, is, is gone away on the mountain, and all of a sudden, he, the children of Israel are left in the care of Aaron. Now, remember, they're wandering in the desert at this point. And so, as they wander in the desert... Moses, the leader, is gone. The real shepherd is gone. They're left in the hands of Aaron. And the people cry out to him. They say, hey, make for us a god like we had in Egypt. Now, remember, they just escaped from Egypt. And why they would want to go back to any of that stuff, I have no idea. But they say, make us a god like we had in Egypt. So he says, okay, give me your necklaces. Give me your earrings. Give me all that stuff. We'll melt it down in a pot. And he fashioned for them a golden calf. Now, the cool thing is, is that God recognizes this is going on. So he releases Moses to go back to the camp. And Moses comes off the mountain, goes back to the camp. And he comes to Aaron and he says, Aaron, what in the world is going on here? What are you doing? And he says, Moses, I don't know. Man, we just put a bunch of gold in the fire. And out of a sudden, out of the fire jumped this golden calf. Well, that's not exactly the story. The real story was he fashioned the golden calf so that they would have something to worship. Now, God ground that, made him grind it down, made it, threw it in the water, made him drink the water, do all that stuff, because he didn't want a graven image. He didn't want them to worship idols. Now, in this process, God said to Moses, he says, I want you to go down there, and I want you to straighten out the people, because right now, I want to kill them. And when Moses goes and he intercedes for the people, he says, oh, no, don't kill them, don't kill them, God. Uh, In fact, if you kill them, kill me first. Kill me first. And so he says... Uh, Don't do that. And it says there in Exodus, it says, and God relented. In some passage of scripture, it says God changed his mind. But he didn't really change his mind. The Hebrew word there is uh, is naham. And naham means that he relented. He said, I'm going to bring this pressure on you so that you will behave properly. And he really brought the pressure on Moses so that Moses would be so bonded to the people that he would stand up for them and say, kill me instead. Jesus, when he comes to earth years later, hundreds of years later, he comes to earth and he says to his father, uh, he doesn't say it, but this is the, in essence what happens. He says, take my life as a ransom. Take my life as a payment for the people whose sins need forgiveness. And so he gave his life. And Moses, 
and God wanted to create within Moses that same kind of bond where he said, I love these people so much that I would be willing to die for them. And when he had created that circumstance, then he could relent. He no longer had to bring punishment upon the children of Israel. So did he change his mind or did his, did his orchestration of history work? I like to believe that his orchestration of history worked because God doesn't need more information from us when we pray. So I don't believe we change God's mind. Now, does prayer change our attitude? That is the primary purpose for prayer, to change my attitude. And more importantly, my attitude gets changed when my beliefs get changed. You know, what, what, what causes your attitude to be the attitude that you have? It's what you believe. Now, if you believe that I'm here for your good, and, and, you, and you listen, and you accept that, and you, and you get changed by that, you go, Pastor Mike loves me, and therefore I have warm feelings toward him. Now, if you came here to church today and you think, I think he's going to hit me up for some money about offering time, and then he's going to put me on a guilt trip for all the bad stuff I've done, and then he's going to do this stuff and make me do stuff I don't want to do, that would cause different feelings, wouldn't it? Because it's determined by what you believe about my motives. So what you believe determines how you feel. How you feel determines on what you do. Okay? Have you ever noticed that? You end up doing pretty much what you want to do. How many of you do that? (laughs) We all do what we want to do. And what we want to do is determined on how we feel about whatever it is, the circumstances, the opportunities, whatever, the people. And so, therefore, that's determined by what I believe about the people, about the circumstance, about the event, whatever it is. So, remember, your attitude is determined by how you feel. How you feel is determined by what you believe. Okay? Now, so God wants to change our attitude. He wants to change what we believe, and that's what prayer does for us. Now, another question. Is, is prayer an opportunity for, let us, for letting us know that we are available to God to be used by him? Yeah. Sometimes when God asks you stuff and you pray and you say, yeah, God, I'm on board with that. I really want to see that happen. I want somebody's life to be changed. So I'll offer my life. I'll give you uh, myself to be used by you to touch their life. And so it's an opportunity for that. Now, let's take a look at the scripture here in Acts 12, 1 through 5, because we want to make prayer a priority because what needs to change in our lives? Our attitude, our attitude. I remember one time I was driving down the freeway. Actually, I was getting on the freeway right at the, at the North Texas on-ramp going toward Vacaville. And this guy came down the on-ramp and cut me off and, and, and sped ahead of me. And I remember thinking to myself, where are the highway patrolmen when you really need them? Yeah. You know, where are the highway patrolmen? And so this guy just sped on down the road, you know. And I didn't think, here's what I did not think. I wonder if maybe there's a family member at the hospital in Vacaville that he is in dire straits to get to, that he really is concerned about. I didn't think about it. I thought he was just being selfish and kind of a punk. And so he cut me off and went on down the road. And I remember thinking, where are the highway patrolmen when you need them? Well, as I got up to Lagoon Valley Road, there was a highway patrolman, and it had this guy pulled over. And I remember kind of going... Yeah, (laughs) good for him. And as I went by, I even went to the extent of giving him a little salute. I honked my horn as I went by. Beep, beep. (laughs) And I remember thinking after that, I thought, what a punk. 
You know, what a punk. Maybe that guy, and this is one that came to me, maybe he was, maybe his wife or his child was, was injured and maybe needing his, his, his support and he was driving like a madman to get to the hospital. I thought, yeah, but my attitude stunk at first. It wasn't until I saw justice happen that my attitude changed, but you know, I'm not, you have to wonder about that and, and myself. But our attitudes need to change, and we need to make prayer a priority because that's what changes our attitude. Acts 12, 1 through 5, here it is. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Now remember, the Herods, and there's several of them as you read through the Bible, the Herods are bad guys, okay? And they had great authority, great power, and they would kill people in their own family if they felt threatened by them. So here's Herod, and he was arresting some people who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, in verse number two, uh, persecution gets pretty severe. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Okay, now remember, James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, and James was one of the original apostles, correct? And so here he is. He's put to death by the sword. He's killed. Now, why do some people get killed and some people get rescued? I don't know. But let's take a look at it. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. You know, he has James put to death, and all of a sudden now, the Jewish people are going, yeah, right on, Herod. Good job. Way to go. Now, remember, Herod's job is to what? Maintain peace in the land. And if he does things that people approve of and, and, and lift up, then he's going to get recognized back in Rome, and Rome's going to say, hey, maybe we could promote this guy. Maybe he has a future in this thing. And so he's trying to make peace with the people, do what's pleasing to them. And all of a sudden, we see a break now here in Judaism and the Christian church. The Jewish people are really opposed to the Christian church because it's drawing people off. It's causing people to follow Jesus rather than follow Judaism. There's jealousy that goes on. And so they get in an uproar about that. And when, when James is put to death, they celebrate that. They say, that's awesome. That's a good thing. So in verse 3, when he saw this, that met with the approval of among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Remember, Peter is another one of the apostles. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Now, what can you expect to happen during the festival of unleavened bread when somebody gets arrested? You're going to put that person on ice for a little while. You're not going to deal with it right then because the people are at a peak when it comes to their spiritual lives. And you don't want to do anything that will upset that balance. And if you start killing people during the festival of unleavened bread, they're going to go, hey, wait a minute, whoa. We have a higher priority here. And so Herod knew this, and so he kind of puts him on ice for a little bit. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. How many of you have, and when we say earnestly, it means they were praying hard. They were praying long. They were praying a lot because there was something that they could not accomplish. And that was the release of Peter. And Peter was integral to their faith life, to their development in faith. And so they needed him desperately. So they prayed earnestly and hard and long for his release. Now, have you ever prayed for something and when it happened, when, when God answered the prayer favorably, you were kind of surprised. 
Because a lot of times we can pray earnestly, fervently, hard and long and be surprised when it gets answered. And we're going to find that that happens here with the people. Now, Rod Cooper is a pastor and he told a story when he was a young guy. And when he was a young guy, his family owned a pig farm. And on this pig farm, they had 400 young piglets uh, in a pen with their moms. And he would go out every day to feed them. And the piglets were a little shy of him. And so whenever he would enter the pen, they would just scatter. But one day he went out into the pen and this little, this little piglet came up and started nibbling at his, at his shoes. And so he said, oh, that's awesome. So he bent down and picked the pig up and just kind of petted it and carried it as he was getting ready to feed him. He's petting it, petting it. And pretty soon the pig gets kind of tired of being carried around. And he squeals a little bit, you know, and wiggles a little bit and wants to be set down. And, and uh, Rod said, no, I'll set you down when I want to set you down. <laughs> you know, I am your master. You know, we get kind of big-headed about stuff. And so he didn't. And pretty soon this pig really wants to get down. This little piglet does. And let out a squeal unlike he had ever heard before. You know, pigs squeal and they grunt and they, you know, when you can tell. It's kind of like children, you know, you know when they're hungry, you know when their diapers need to be changed. But you also hear a different scream when they're in danger. And he said that's what's kind of like the scream that this piglet let out. And all of a sudden, from the four corners of the pen, come all these 600-pound female pigs charging at him and snorting and acting real nasty. And he said... He put the piglet down, ran for cover, and jumped over the fence just as the, the mothers got there, and they just kept going back and forth there at the fence, grunting and growling at him. And he said, woo. Now, I'm sure they settled down after a while because they were hungry, but the truth of the matter is, and here's the, the correlation he made. He said the little piglet knew that help was only one squeal away. When we enter life and when we go through life and when we go through difficulties, we need to know that help from God is just one squeal away. Just one squeal away. And that squeal, though, when you thought, stop and think about it, is a different tone. It is a different fervency. It's a different kind of, uh, of sound because desperation is at hand. This little piglet was desperate for somebody to come and rescue it. And I believe that God knows that when we just kind of throw up a prayer or do whatever, uh, you know, it just sounds normal. But sometimes we have a real fervent request, a real sincere request. And that's the squeal that he's waiting for. So make prayer a priority. The second thing that I want us to do is to believe that God is willing and able to help. Now, of those two things, God is willing and God is able. Let's stop and think for a minute. Which of those two things is easier? We're going to take a vote here. How many of you believe that, that believing that God is willing is easier to believe than God is able? Okay, willingness. How many think it's easier to believe God is willing than able? Okay, how many of you think that it's easier to believe that God is able more than willing? I'm kind of in the last camp too. I'm kind of believing that I know that God can do anything in the world that he wants to do. I know that. But is he willing to do that now and for me? In um, Acts 12, 6 through 16. Now remember, James has been put to death by the sword. He was killed. Okay? Peter is put in prison. Okay? So James and Peter are two different, different outcomes of the same faith. And so here, let's read what happens to Peter. 
The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Let's set the stage. Peter's sleeping. He's chained in this prison cell to a guard on each side of him. He's chained to them. There's two other guards, at least two other guards. It says sentries. So at least two other guards standing right outside. What do you think the chances of rescue are? I don't know. If I just look at that situation, I say, that's zero chance. There's zero chance. And in my mind, James, also a great leader in in the fledgling Christian church, James has been already put to death. So I think, hmm, what's going to happen to Peter? Boy, is he going to be tortured before he dies? Here he is, chained to two guys, two centuries outside. Suddenly, verse 7, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Okay, Now he wakes him up. You know, Anybody here ever get slapped upside the head? Yeah, I've never have, nor have my children, I might add. Uh, but even though they may deserve it. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that's kind of what I smacked him, woke him up. And so here he is. But now, apparently the two guards don't get awakened. The sentries must be sleeping on the job. Who knows? And so here he is. He, uh, he wakes Peter up and says to him, quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now, they, don't, they weren't taken off. They, they just fell off. And you have to say, something pretty miraculous is happening here. And, and if you're in a miraculous situation like that, what's your first thought? No. Our first thought is not God, usually. I'll be honest with you. Our first thought is, is this real? That's our first thought. That was Peter's first thought. Check out what happens. Uh, quick, get up. Uh, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Now, sometimes the miraculous comes to us like that. I don't know if you've ever had the miraculous, but when it happened to Peter, he thought, whoa, this can't be happening. This cannot be real. Okay, Because it's out of the ordinary. It's out of the set of the, the construction I have for how this world works. So therefore, it must not be real. So, uh, he, he follows, though. In verse number 10, they passed the first and second guards, and notice the first and second guards, okay, and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked uh, the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Now, let's talk about God's ability first, because I think that's the easier of the two things to believe. God's ability to do stuff. Now, what has God done that you can recall from reading through the Bible? What did God do in Genesis in the first couple of chapters? He created the heavens and the earth. He created that. Now, we think about Peter, and we think about the chains falling off, and we think about him escaping without getting noticed and without being uh, pursued. One of those, which of those two things do you think is easier for God? The removing of chains and the escape of Peter, or create the world and everything that we see? 
I think the creation probably is a bigger deal. But how did God do it as you read through Genesis? How did God do that? He spoke it into existence. Let there be, and there was. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. Let the, the waters separate. Let all this stuff happen. He spoke it into existence. So do you think he could just kind of wink and have the chains fall off of Peter? Even if he had to do that, he might have just done a nothing and had it happen. God has the ability to do that. Let's talk about Jesus for a minute uh, because, you know, how hard was it, would it be to unlock the iron gate? Okay, when we look at the word, we find that Jesus, he walked on water, he calmed storms, he fed thousands of people, healed diseases of every kind, raised the dead, and Jesus did all of that stuff with relative ease. You know, it wasn't like he said, hey, we got to feed 5,000 today, guys. Let's work for a couple of weeks and figure out how to do it. He said, no, find out what do we have. He already knew what the people needed. What do they need? They need some food. Okay, what do we have? Let's take those resources and ask the Father in heaven to bless the people with these resources. And everybody fed, everybody ate, and they were filled, and there was stuff left over. Jesus could do stuff like that. So it's not the ability that we falter with, you know, when we think about God and the magnitude of his power. It's not that. But what we really struggle with more, I think, is his willingness. Will he do that for me? In Mark chapter 9, we find a story about a man and, and he has a demon-possessed son and, and the son is struggling and he wants him to be healed and, and all of that stuff. And, and Jesus tells him, well, if you believe, you know, if you trust, if you believe... Uh, it'll happen. And notice what he says. He says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. There in Mark chapter 9, verse 4. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And I always struggled with that as a kid, reading that. And I thought, what, you know, if you believe, how can, you know, unbelief, unbelief, what is it? And I believe that what the dad was saying is, I believe you can do it. But I don't know if you would do it for someone like me. I don't know if you'd do it for someone like my son. I don't know if we, we merit your, your mercy. I don't know if we merit your grace. And that's the whole beauty of mercy and grace. Is that mercy is giving people not what they deserve, but what they need. Okay? And God earlier in the Old Testament says, I, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Now, sacrifice was a pretty big deal to the Old Testament people because that's how they believed that they could be right with God, is to follow the law and to sacrifice. God says, man, I want you guys to get beyond yourselves. I want you to understand that I put you here for the benefit of other people, and as you show them mercy, what you're doing is you're showing them me. And that's the whole goal of life is to reveal who God is. And so, therefore, do that by showing mercy. Don't give people what they deserve. Give them what they need instead. And so here we find uh, that this guy says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome this thing that, that says, I know you can do it, but I don't know that you'll do it for me. And that's where I think we as believers struggle most often. Would God do that for me? And I think we have the paradigm all wrong because we think God's doing something for us. But I want you to know that when God does stuff like that, He's doing it as much for himself as he is for you. 
Because when he does a miraculous thing for you, his desire is that we would make him known through what he has done. Remember when the, the disciples of John were, were questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah. And they came to Jesus and they said, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? John wants us to know, wants us to inquire of you. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And he says, well, just take a look at what I've done. Take a look at the people that are healed. Take a look at the things that are done. Take a look at the stuff that comes out of me. And then you decide if I am the one. What he's saying is, I want you to evaluate whether I'm making God known or not. And that's what God wants to do in us. So he does some miraculous stuff. Why does God not do more miraculous stuff in our lives today? I think it's because we're kind of selfish. And we want God to do stuff for us because it's for us. It would make my life easier. It would make my life more whatever it is that we're looking for. And it's not so that we can make him known because we're going to get here and we're going to realize that when Peter gets released, he doesn't just go, whoo, thank you, God, for letting me dodge that bullet. He goes and lets it be known to the people what happened and the power that God has. So now, we have to, we, we come to this thing, this element of, that's called faith. What is faith? Because faith is, if it's, it's, it's got to be more than just what we ascribe to as, this is my belief system. Here's what I believe, and I have these tenets of faith, and I have this stuff over here that I believe, and I put it together, and I call it my religious faith. And we could probably expound on it. We could say, here's what I believe, blah, 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 blah. But faith is really, in its essence, trust. And that's why I often ask you, you know, when you're facing life's decisions and you're trying to make a decision, the two questions we need to ask is, number one, who do I trust? Number two, what do I believe? Okay, who do I trust and what do I believe? And that will help me analyze where my faith system is coming from. Okay, so here's Peter. He has some faith. He follows because every time the angel said, do this, he did it. That's what faith is. Trust in what God has said to do. On May 25th in 1979, Flight 191 uh, crashed moments after it took off from Chicago uh, O'Hare Airport. All 271 people on board were killed and two people on the ground as well. At that time, it was the greatest air disaster that had ever occurred in the history of the United States until 9-11. So this was a big deal. The article that uh, explained all of it told how an uh, unexpected delay in New York spared a Christian from catching this deadly flight. Now, if an unexpected delay had caused you to miss that flight, you would say, God rescued me, right? Wouldn't we say that? That might be the assumption that we would arrive at. Uh, After the article was published, one of the readers sent a letter to the author, and the letter began with these words. I just had to let you know about one of God's great saints who ran to make flight 191. He not only ran to make it, but he made it. And he died in the process. His name was Edward E. Elliott, and he was a beloved pastor of the Garden Grove Orthodox Presbyterian Church in California. Edward's plane from Pennsylvania had also been late, and a friend who flew with him as far as Chicago said he last saw him dashing forward in the terminal to make his connection. Remember, this is a Christian man as well, right? 
And one guy gets rescued because he was delayed. This man runs and makes the flight and dies. Now, was God present with one and not the other? The rest of the story. The note raised that question in the author's heart. Was God at work in New York that day, but not in Pennsylvania? The answer came in the rest of the note that said, At the time, Reverend Elliot didn't know that he was indeed running to heaven. Mrs. Elliot and her four married children comforted the entire church. Their Christian faith and testimony in sorrow was most extraordinary. Now, you know, if I make that flight and die, do I get more, I don't know, do I get more notoriety, so to speak, or does my message get out more than if I don't make the flight and I come and tell you, oh man, I couldn't make it last Sunday because I missed my flight and God rescued me from that great disaster. Now, when I think about that, that wears off after a few weeks when I say that, you know, I I missed the flight. God rescued me. We go, yeah, maybe that was a circumstance. Maybe that was this. Maybe that was that. But, you know, truly God, I, I, I don't question that. But in the essence of running to heaven, and then my family says, you know what? He's where he wants to be. And they minister to people and touch people's lives and bring them comfort and bring them wholeness in the midst of adversity. What ways more do you think? I don't know. It's hard to say. But is God present in both of those? Yeah. And that's what we sometimes fail to see. We think that God is present only in those things that bring me safety, only in those things that bring me wealth, only in those things that bring me comfort, only in those things that bring me whatever it is I think that I'm missing in life. But in reality, God is present in those tragedies of life as much as he is present in the blessings that we might think of life. Were both of these men blessed? Yeah. I mean, what greater blessing could it be than to go home to be with God in heaven, you know, and to experience the the joy that the angels experienced there? No greater blessing than that. And so you have to say, you know, maybe the way we think needs to change. And again, transformation changes where? In what I believe. Most people on, on this planet Earth believe that life on this earth is the best thing that there is. So therefore, we cling to it as hard as we can. When it comes time for me to die, I hope I can hold life with loose hands. Just say, you know, God, I'm yours. Third thing. Okay, we need to hurry here. Okay, after this, first of all, the first thing that we need to do is make prayer a priority. Then we need to believe that God is willing and able to do whatever it is he wants to do, not necessarily what I want him to do. Now, remember, one of the purposes of prayer is to help me to define what God wants to do. Most of the time we spend praying telling God what we want him to do. But really, prayer is to help me to discern what does God want to do. And so, therefore, when we pray, the first question we ask is, uh, we might describe the situation. Here's the situation, God. What do you want me to do here? How do you want me to be? What do you want me to trust? What do you want me to say? And so, therefore, it's not, God, relieve this situation. Make it go away. But how can I interact in this, whether it's a tragedy or whether it's a triumph? How should I interact with this situation? And then the third thing is that we need to tell what God has done. We need to tell what God has done. A lot of times we as Christians, we don't, do, we don't brag on God enough, and we brag on ourselves way too much. 
us. And we think that if we tell about what God has done, people will think more highly of us than we should, than they should. And we'll bring, you know, we'll try to bring the light to shine on us more than it is on God. But make sure you let the light shine on God. In Acts 12, 12 through 17, um, here's Peter's just got out. And uh, here he is. He's, he recognizes now this is reality. And so when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Notice they started praying up at the beginning of this, this passage. They're still praying. Now, what are they praying for? That Peter would be released from prison. Okay, that's what they're praying for. Check out what happens. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to the door and she answered it. Uh, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Now, if you're praying for Peter to get out of prison and somebody goes to the door after there's a knock and they come back and say, Peter's at the door, wouldn't you go, thank you, God? No, maybe not. Maybe not. Here's what they said. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel because they assumed that he was dead. Okay. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. I love this, because it's a lot like us, isn't it? Sometimes we pray for stuff, God answers it, and we go, wow, I didn't expect that. You know, I didn't expect that. I, that's what I wanted. That's what I believe God wanted. But he did what he wanted to do, and he did what I, I, I was in concurrence with him when, when he did it. And now, I can't believe he did it. You know, I can't believe he did it. I remember when my granddaughter Zoe was born. Uh, she was born prematurely, and we prayed for her and prayed for her and prayed for her. And, and a lot of people in a lot of churches prayed for her uh, because there were times where she would actually uh, quit breathing. Uh, her lungs were so undeveloped, and she would quit breathing, and the nurse would come. We would be in there, and the nurse would come in and put the bag thing on her and start pumping her up. And, you know, we're hoping, you know, she's got to breathe, got to breathe. Oh, okay. Got her. I can't tell you how many times they had to do that. Uh, and we prayed and prayed and prayed. And uh, we prayed that God would let her come home. And finally, God lets her come home. She's got a feeding tube in her stomach. She's still on oxygen. And we go, oh, God, I pray that she's just, she can grow up to be a normal young lady. And, uh, and, and God answered that prayer. And now she's a nine-year-old, you know, fourth grade, doing, doing well, just doing really well. And, uh, and often we will say, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it because we were so scared and so terrified and all that stuff. But we prayed and God answered that prayer and we still say, I can't believe it. And I think that's the way a lot of us are. When something that we're concerned about, something that we need God's help with because God is the only source here and finally it happens and you just go, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. We asked God to do it. He did it. I can't believe it. Well, what does that say about our faith? I don't know. But anyway, um, he, he, but uh, she insisted with, so let's go back here. Peter's at the door. You're out of the mind, they told her. Uh, but she insisted, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. When they opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Now, it, apparently, when they were so astonished, they were, they were yammering quite a bit. They go, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. He goes, hey, settle down. Settle down. Be quiet. And so he motions with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Now, I don't know. They couldn't believe that it was Peter after he tells his story. Do you think there's any greater belief? 
I mean, oh yeah, I was laying there, I was chained to these two guards, there's two guys standing outside, and all of a sudden, this angel slaps me upside the head, and the chains drop off, and he says, hey, follow me, and the doors open, we go past all these guys, and, and all of a sudden, he gets outside, and I realize, boy, this is not a dream, this is real, and all of a sudden, the angel vanishes, so I came here. Now, somebody tells you that story, do you just say, hmm, eh, yeah, and they were astonished, they were astonished, and so he describes that, and he says this, Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Now, this wasn't a perfect church, was it? It wasn't a perfect church. In fact, our church is not a perfect church. It's as close as you can get, but it's not a perfect church. Okay? Now, they didn't believe that God would answer their prayer because they were so astonished. Many times when we pray, we don't believe that God's going to answer our prayer. Uh, they insulted Rhoda and called her crazy. You know, They weren't a perfect church. They, they insulted people. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been insulted at church, but I hope it's not been at my hands. Could have been. Okay, this wasn't perfect church, but they did tell their story. They told their story. And sometimes in imperfection, when you tell the story, it only magnifies the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the story of God. I'm going to read to you a little poem that was uh, written by Mavis Williams. It says this. If you could find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church. You'd spoil the atmosphere. (laughs) If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest joining it, you'd smear the masterpiece. If you should find the perfect church, then don't you ever dare to tread upon such holy ground, you'd be a misfit there. I'm glad that we don't have a perfect church, you know? And, and every one of us is flawed. Every one of us, you know, whether you've been redeemed or not, you know, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, we still have our faults. We still have our failures. We still have our shortcomings. We are not the perfect church, but it does not prevent us. And we're not perfect people, but it should not prevent us from telling our story. And that's what I find most believers, most Christians, they don't want to tell their story because they recognize their failure. They reckon, you know, I believe in God, I trust God, I love God, but there's this about me. And people know this. Who are the least likely people to hear about your faith in God? Generally, it's our families, because our families know the good, the bad, and the ugly about us. But nonetheless, tell your story. Tell your story about what God has done, and let his grace, his mercy, and his love be known through your life. Okay. So three things I want you to do. Number one, pray. I want you to pray like you've never prayed before. And then I want you to believe God that he's willing and that he is able. And then on the other side of the dilemma that you have experienced, I want you to tell your story. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because that's what makes it human. And that's what will connect it with other people.